Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on August 25th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This is the special third part of our two-part B-podcast. It was going to consist solely of an interview I had done in July with John Williams, the beekeeper at Downhouse, Darwin's home in England. But on August 24th, May Berenbaum, from the first two parts of this series, her student Reed Johnson and their colleagues published a major paper on colony collapse disorder in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So I called May Berenbaum the morning of August 25th, and we'll hear that conversation, after which John Williams will talk about Darwin's bees. So one more time, here's May Berenbaum speaking from her office at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Berenbaum, in part one of the podcast, which uh, was recorded actually in February, you talked about the fact that your student, Reed Johnson, was doing the genomic analysis of the honeybees, and that might yield some really interesting clues as to what's really going on with colony collapse. And just fortuitously for our scheduling, on August 24th, your paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Can you just talk about what what new information you've gotten so far? Well, back in February, uh, as a result of the microarray analysis, we knew that we uh, were seeing these uh, essentially broken ribosomes in the bees afflicted with colony collapse disorder. Broken ribosomes. And ribosomes are the protein factories of the cell. Every cell has a nucleus, which is kind of the headquarters that provides instructions, and beyond the, the headquarters building, the nucleus, there's the um, surrounding cytoplasm. That's where all the uh, instructions for the nucleus are carried out. Uh, the ribosome is a cell structure where proteins are made uh, based on the instructions from the nucleus. So um, every cell needs ribosomes to make protein, so the, the sight of these uh, broken ribosomes suggested something was profoundly wrong uh, with the bees afflicted with the colony collapse disorder. So we knew what the damage was. At least we had a fairly reliable indicator of the damage associated with CCD. What we didn't really have a plausible expan- explanation for is what was busting up the ribosomes. Uh, and at, since February, uh, what we also noted on the microarray, in addition to honeybee genes, the microarray included uh, genetic material from some of the most uh, widespread uh, pathogens or disease-causing organisms. So when you're doing your, your searching, you're able to look at both what genes are active in the honeybees and what genes are active in the, in the parasites that could attack the honeybees. Uh, basically, yes, because uh, we, we had included these pathogens on the microarray because uh, it's kind of a twofer. You get, uh, you can extract the genetic material from, that comes out of the bees and look at the genetic material that belongs to the bees and the genetic material that doesn't belong there in the first place, that is, from the pathogens. And one thing we noticed is that, uh, the colony collapse, bees with colony collapse disorder, uh, had multiple infections with a particular type of pathogen called the picorna-like virus. Um, now, picorna-like, Pico means little. RNA means, well, it's the genetic instructions that are based on DNA. So little RNA viruses. And uh, this was quite um, uh, eye-opening because, as it turns out, the picorna-like viruses all attack the ribosome. And uh, in the past, there had been previous studies that uh, linked 
colony collapse disorder to a particular picornal-like virus. Uh, in September of 2007, uh, Diana Cox Foster and uh, her collaborators identified a new virus called Israeli acute paralysis virus, which is one of these picornal-like viruses, and associated it with CCD. But it didn't appear to cause it. It wasn't there every time. Well, our finding was it didn't. It wasn't one particular virus, but multiple viruses that all seem to attack the ribosome, and uh, ultimately the ribosome can't fend them off. What happens is these viruses take over the ribosome, and instead of um, making B proteins, the ribosomes start making viral proteins. So the B apparently has the capacity to deal with uh, one or two of these, but multiple viral infections, basically the whole system breaks down. So is this the smoking gun? Well, the analogy I've used with respect to this particular study, it's not the smoking gun, it's the bullet hole. It's the bullet hole, okay. Which we we didn't have till now. Right. Uh, What what exactly the the cause of the... I mean, it's still a correlative study, but we now have an explanation for what went wrong. Um, uh, Bees can't survive without functional ribosomes, uh, the ribosomes make the proteins that allow bees to respond to pesticides, to respond to diseases, to respond to poor nutrition. So um, the ribosomal fragments that we were finding explain a lot of things. It explains, among other things, the observation that CCD seems to be caused by everything. And in fact, it very well might be that once the ribosomes cease functioning uh, properly, then anything can cause bees to go under. Right. In that way, you could think of it maybe as being similar to an HIV infection in humans. Uh, with the caveat that it's not the immune system that's affected. Right. But it's, well, yeah, exactly. All, right. I'm, all I mean is that that might not be the immediate cause of, uh, right. you know, the, the death of the individual. It's just that now they're susceptible to anything right. that ordinarily they could have dealt with. Exactly. So an opportunistic uh, um, stress, it just can't be handled. So now what's the next step in, in the, the overarching research project to try to find the cause of CCD and deal with it? Well, one thing we'd really like to do, these we are proposing that these uh, an overabundance of these ribosome fragments can be used as a genetic marker for CCD. That's something that we've been lacking up till this point. Colony collapse disorder is diagnosed um, subjectively uh, based on uh, the number of frames in a hive that are uh, appear to be affected, the relative ratio of foragers to um, bee workers that go out in the field versus bee workers that stay inside, the uh, ratio of adult to immature bees. And these are very changeable parameters through they change geographically they change throughout the season so with an objective molecular diagnostic tool we can actually see if in fact um, colony collapse disorder is one phenomenon or whether bees all over the world are disappearing for multiple reasons very interesting I I don't know if uh, you can hear the cicadas by the way I forgot to (laughs) close the window where I'm recording and we're uh, we're really uh, teeming with cicadas over here, and so it's it's kind of a nice background sound for our whole insect chat. <laughs> well, this is all really fascinating stuff, and uh, I guess, you know, once you've dealt with 
the media talking to you over the next couple of days, it's going to be right back to the lab to go back to work on this problem. I sure hope so, although I have to say it's it's a real challenge explaining um, in simple terms what our findings represent because um, uh, it's it's not simple. It's not, you know... Uh, it's not a whodunit. It's not uh, the butler who did it. Right. It's not a game of Clue. It's not that easy. It's just, it's not the, the butler. I forget who the Clue characters are, but in the kitchen with the... Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. There yeah. you go. Yeah. It's it's uh, three people in four different rooms with six different implements. Yeah. So, um, and, and kind of requires a sort of a basic lesson in cell biology <laughs> And the central dogma of contemporary biology. Right, because that that ribosome is uh, is this little machine in the cell that makes the proteins, and if that goes awry, then everything starts to collapse. That's at least our operative hypothesis now. So. Great, thank you very much. Thank you. Don't forget to check out May Barenbaum's new book, The Earwig's Tale. In early July, I was in London for a conference. I took an afternoon and went up to Darwin's house in Down where I ran into beekeeper John Williams. Tell me about what you do and what you do specifically here at Downhouse. Well, I, I'm a beekeeper, and I became involved with English Heritage a few years ago when uh, they really wanted to put on a display of what uh, Charles Darwin did with uh, honeybees. Um, there's quite a lot in The Origin of Species when Darwin wrote about uh, the building of of uh, cells, the hexagonal shape of cells, uh, and um, so that's how I got involved with with the project, and I found it very interesting too. So you live nearby, and you're a, you're a, an avid beekeeper. Yes, I'm a very enthusiastic beekeeper, and I live nearby, and that's the main reason why I was asked to to help them. And the actual exhibit we have here is uh, a working living hive inside Darwin's old laboratory. Yes, it is an observation hive. So it's not, uh, you can't compare it really with a, a production hive. Uh, it's purely for observing bees. And of course, that's one of the things that Darwin did. He had an observation hive here uh, in Down. We don't know exactly where it was because the laboratory hadn't been built at the time he had the observation hive, which, which was in 1858 when he had a few types of hives here trying to solve the question of how bees build hexagonal cells. Um, Many people thought it was the mathematical skills they were given specially by God to build build the cells, but uh, Darwin was able to explain how the uh, building of cells was achieved in evolutionary terms. And in a nutshell, or a, a hive cell... How how do you explain it in evolutionary terms? Well, uh, the, the best explanation is that he studied the cells built by bumblebees and also by a Mexican stingless bee, which showed that some of the, any cells that intersected or nearly intersected, the bees built a wall, uh, a straight wall in between the points of intersection. And of course, if you have a bundle of cylinders to get close together. Uh, there would be six cylinders around one cell. And uh, inevitably, if you then aim to save wax, and that's the other instinct of the honeybee, 
is to build cylinders and to save wax. If you save wax, you will inevitably end with six-sided hexagonal cells. It's a minimum expenditure of the bees' resources. Absolutely. It's uh, it's very similar in a way to why the uh, Giant's Causeway, for example, in Northern Ireland uh, are also hexagonal. And there are in nature other examples of hexagonal forms because it is the most economical form for containing lava and pupae and, of course, for the storage of honey. And anybody who's fortunate enough to come visit Downhouse will be able to see this observation hive, which is also connected to the outside world. Well, we're trying to do that now, trying to get that connected through the Beecraft website. That's a, a, a magazine for beekeepers, as you could have guessed. Um, and and that's, um, I think, will also be on the English Heritage website in due course. So there will be a camera set up here, yes. so anybody anywhere in the world should be able to take a look at this. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? <laughs> it is, so behave yourself when you're here. But there, there also is a, a, uh, a plastic tube that's connecting the, the observation hive to another room or, or to... To the outside to, to world. To the outside, so yeah. free-living bees can come oh, in yes. and join the hive. Of course, the bees uh, need to fly out because it's... It's permanently sighted here throughout the season, but not through the winter. It's too cold for them in winter to um, keep the hive, keep the colony warm in such a, a small hive. And you have not personally witnessed the kind of uh, decrease in bee populations that we've been seeing in the States? No, personally I haven't suffered the losses, uh, but we are very concerned about some of the new diseases that are coming along. Um, I think we're learning a lot about how to manage the population of the varroa mite, um, which appears to cause a lot of trouble. Uh, the, the interaction between the mite and various viruses, uh, and, and uh, some of our scientists, I believe, are, are learning a lot about that. And uh, we're able to keep the mite under control in terms of population, and I think that's saved us a lot of losses. We have suffered losses through poor summers, uh, and, and that that is usually su- we suffer the losses during the following winter. And the poor summers begin the cascade downward because, well, because in in the mating of the queen, the new queens for next year's honey crop, the mating takes place in flight, uh, and. Uh, it, it, the ideal conditions are lovely, warm days like we have today uh, with minimal breezes so so that the drones, the male bees, will um, form into congregation areas, which is what we now know they do. And the queens fly into those areas to be mated. And, of course, a poor summer means that opportunities for queen mating uh, are more unlimited. And that usually manifests itself during the winter when she runs out of male sperm uh, and uh, is producing only drone bees instead male bees instead of the worker female bees that we need for the spring anybody who's listening to this and would be interested in accessing your columns in your publication can do so how well uh, the, the magazine beecraft they have a website um, and uh, I think if you Google B 
Beecraft. You you are you will undoubtedly be able to get uh, get that. Beecraft and John Williams. Well, uh, yes, and there are many other beekeepers who write, of course, and and it's a very interesting monthly magazine, especially for, of course, aimed at beekeepers. Great talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Been a pleasure. If you don't feel like Googling, the website for Beecraft Magazine is www.bee-craft.com. Well, that's it for this episode of Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news, including an article on a new bone cement for fractures. No, it is not Felix Unger's barnacle glue. And the story on the new state-of-the-art research into high-temperature ice cream. You thought I was going to say superconductivity, didn't you? No, I'm talking about something really important here. And we'll be back later in the week with our regularly scheduled podcast featuring a discussion related to the special September Origins issue of Scientific American magazine. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of the aforementioned Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.